The devil has a man, he's often nicknamed Satan's Superman, who's coming with incredible power, with great intellect. Women will swoon at his feet. Children will speak of him with a sense of awe. And he will control the world like we have never seen in all of recorded history. And our passage this morning focuses on one aspect of what this man is going to do. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Man of Sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Today, Pastor Carl will articulate how the Antichrist is revealed as we look at the climate of his coming and the clue to his character. Join us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 now as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you are joining us for the first time, we're between verse-by-verse verse exposition of a, Bible, of a book of a Bible, and we're doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 13th message in that series. And right now we are examining that portion of coming events known as the Great Tribulation. So we began in the Olivet Discourse, and as we work through the first 14 verses, we've stepped back on a few occasions and we've focused on some specifics of what Jesus has covered in that portion of Scripture before we go back. Let me just remind you of what the Lord said there to those four men. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now knowing that many people today don't even know what the abomination of desolation is, and yet it is such a game changer that Jesus said when you see this event take place, the world is going to see an expression of the wrath of God that they have never seen in all of human history. Not even in the great flood, as terrible as that was, they're going to see an expression of God's hand that will cover the planet in ways that man could not even imagine. And it will be triggered by this event known as the abomination of desolation. And so last time, we looked at the 70th week prophecy that Daniel is referenced in this verse, 15th verse. Jesus said, when you see what Daniel the prophet wrote about, the abomination of desolation. So we stepped back and we asked what precisely was this particular event? Who will do it? When will it happen? And we're going to hone in this morning a little bit more on some of the specifics. The devil has a man, he's often nicknamed Satan's Superman, 
who's coming with incredible power, with great intellect. Women will swoon at his feet. Children will speak of him with a sense of awe. And he will control the world like we have never seen in all of recorded history. And our passage this morning focuses on one aspect of what this man is going to do. So I hope you have found it, 2 Thessalonians 2. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor and we will get you one. Follow along, beginning now in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Years ago, I told you about a man who bought a barometer from Abercrombie and Fitch Back then, it was a sporting goods, an excursion store of sorts. And finally, his expensive barometer arrived, and he took it out of the box, and it was stuck on hurricane. And I hear they sent me this defective barometer, and he shook it and banged it. On the train ride into the city of New York that day, he wrote the company of how discouraged he was as he was looking forward to his new barometer. But his trip, unbeknownst to him and most people in New York, was delayed that day because by the end of the day, the hurricane of 1938 came and it wiped out his entire home and it was one of the single biggest worst hurricanes that Long Island and the city had ever seen. And so God has given us a barometer and it does not need to be adjusted. It simply needs to be believed. But most people think that somehow it's broken, that we can ignore it, that we can go on living as if nothing is happening in this world. But God is going to allow under his providence and under his sovereignty, the evil one to come and release a man who's known as the Antichrist. He's called by some 30 different names in both sides of the Bible. He's called the willful king, the little horn. He's called the king of fierce countenance. So most of you know him by his most popular name. He's called the Antichrist. And the word anti is a Greek prefix, and it means instead of, he will come in the place of Christ, and it also means against. 
And this man will wear both sides of the prefects. He will come against Christ and he will come in the place of Christ. Now in the history of the world, many men have sought to rule the world. 1,500 years before Christ, the great pharaohs of Egypt sought to rule the world, but they only got as far as the Middle East. 600 years before Christ, we studied Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, and his empires included most of Western Asia. 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great stepped on the scene. His empire included East India, and for a brief time, he ruled Western uh, Asia, North Africa, and most of Southeast Europe. At the time of Christ, the Roman uh, Caesars came, but again, their empires were limited. In more modern times, Napoleon stepped on the scene. He had aspirations to rule the world, but of course, he was defeated at Waterloo. In the last century, there was certainly Stalin and Lenin and Hitler, who all wanted to dominate the entire world. Yet there's never been a leader in the history of man, in the history of recorded history, who has ever ruled the entire planet. But there is coming a man known as the Antichrist who will wear the disguise of a peacemaker who will literally rule the world. Now, God's book tells us not only how time began, he also tells us how this age will end. And there's coming a world leader under the sovereignty of God. Remember, Luther was right when he said the devil is Satan's, the devil is God's devil. In other words, the devil cannot do anything that God in his own power and sovereignty allows him to do. But there's coming a time when God is going to give the evil one an expression of freedom that he's often dreamed about, and through his false Messiah, he is going to rule the world and seek the worship of the world. And God wrote about it in this book. God wrote the future before it happened, and we would do well to listen and to heed what God has to say because this is not simply about events way out there in the future. He's writing to churches in Thessalonica and across the planet in our day because these are truths that have great application for us. There's a note-taking outline there in your bulletin, and let me kind of give you a preview of where we're headed this morning. The first five verses, we're going to learn something about the revealing of this coming Antichrist so that Christians won't mistake when he arrives. And then in verses six to eight, we're going to learn something about how he's being held back or restrained. We'll learn why it is uh, that he's not on the scene now and what it is, or maybe better, who it is that is currently restraining him. And then in verses 9 through 12, we'll learn about uh, the opportunity when he has given freedom to rule. So let's begin with how the Antichrist is revealed, how he's revealed. Here in the opening two verses, Paul reveals why it is that he is addressing this issue of the coming Antichrist. And so let me give you some of the historical context. He begins by telling us something about the climate of his coming, the climate of his coming. Now, we know from chapter 1 that the church at Thessalonica was experiencing intense persecution. And since the Old Testament describes this coming time frame known as the Day of the Lord as a time of great persecution, 
not to mention they heard, no doubt, some of the things that Jesus had taught on it. They believed that maybe they were in that day, that they had somehow been misinformed or misunderstood about the rapture and that they were indeed in the day of the Lord, that they had miscalculated in their theology how Christ would come back for his church. Notice verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, the NAS 2020 says brothers and sisters because it's a generic term. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. He's speaking about our gathering together to him. That's what we call the rapture. When the dead in Christ will be raised, when Jesus will bring back with him from heaven those who have already died, he'll reunite their spirits that are in heaven with the body that's in the ground or wherever it may be. And then those of us who are alive will be caught up and will meet the Lord in the air. Jesus unfolded this mystery after Judas left. There in the upper room, he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. The old English says mansions, but in 1611, the word mansion meant a room. So when you think about this place that God has prepared for us, and it's just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that is yet to be created, it's a big house. It's a family place. And it's filled with many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, as this chart helps us to see, we've been studying the next great event known as the rapture. And after the rapture takes place, shortly thereafter, there'll be a period known as the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's called in the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's or Israel's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the great tribulation. And both Daniel and Jesus and the apostle John divides it, if you remember, into two halves. The first half is described as the time of great tribulation, but when this event that we're studying this morning takes place, the abomination of desolation, then it really gets bad, such that it is now modified with the word great tribulation. Now, it's important that when you think about the return of Christ, that you do not confuse the catching up, our gathering together with him, with his second coming. Now, we don't believe that Christ will come back twice. He's just coming back in two stages. It's much like his first coming. It happened in a number of stages. He was incarnated in Mary's womb. He grew up in Nazareth. He began his public ministry at 30. He ministered for approximately three and a half years. He was crucified, dead, raised. He walked on the earth for another 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven off of the Mount of Olives. Well, even so, the return of Jesus from heaven has a series of events. First is the catching up of the church, the harpazo. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be harpazo, caught up. And in the Latin translation of the Bible that was used for nearly a thousand years by Christians, it's the Latin word that gives us our English word, rapture. And so the rapture, however, is distinctly different. Remember, they're separated by seven years. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, seven plus years later, he comes back with his saints. At the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. We shall be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. 
but at the second coming, his feet come back and touch the earth. He comes to the earth. Clearly a distinctly different event. He will catch us up, 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye. That's really quick. Whereas at the second coming, the Bible says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The rapture of the church is imminent. That means he could come at any moment. Nothing ever prophetically has needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Whereas obviously the second coming is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen. For instance, most of the prophecy that deals with the second coming concerns Israel and in events in and around Israel. Well, Israel had been out of the land for 1,900 years. They would have to be back in the land. They would have to be reestablished as a nation. And after 1,900 years, God, just as he prophesied, both by Moses and by Jesus and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, he would gather them from the four corners of the world and put them back in the land. So nothing prophetically has to happen for Jesus to return. All kinds of things has to happen for his second coming, the return to happen. So when Paul speaks of our gathering together, he's speaking here of the rapture. We request you, again, verse one, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice how this church is described. He uses a verb. It's translated here, shaken. It's used outside of the New Testament in first century Greek of a ship that had literally been shaken from its moorings. The second verb he uses is disturbed. And it describes an ongoing, continual state of agitation. And so these Christians through the teaching of false teachers, had been shaken, they had been disturbed to the core. Now, as this slide shows, again, remember, the rapture of the church is going to happen, the second coming will happen, the millennial reign of the Messiah will happen, that's a thousand years long, and then the final judgment of all men, the great white throne judgment, will happen. And Paul in this portion of scripture is referring to a time frame known as the day of the Lord. And I did a whole sermon on this. This is again the 13th message in this series, but I did one message just on the day of the Lord. And that might be helpful for some who are new to the Bible. But the day of the Lord mimics a biblical day from sundown to sundown. It's not referring to a specific 24 hour day, but to a protracted period of time, just like the day of your youth. And it mimics a biblical day. It starts in great darkness and the shadows are coming in our day. But when the church is removed, it gets very dark on the world. And when Jesus comes back at the second coming, it gets bright as light and he reigns in a glorious, magnificent way for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, as we will study, where Satan has been bound he will be loosed, and the children born to tribulation saints during the time of the millennial reign will have to make a decision for Christ, and Satan will have one final rebellion, and then we will go into eternity future. So again, he's describing this long protracted period of time. Now, the church at Thessalonica did not have the book of Revelation. 
hadn't been written yet. It was indeed the last book written in the New Testament canon. They didn't have all the chilling events that are recorded in chapters 4 through 19. But they knew enough that if indeed they were in the day of the Lord and they thought the persecution they were experiencing must have signaled that truth, especially in light of the false teaching that was behind that, that this was bad. They were shaken to the core. They were trembling. Now, verse 2 reminds us of three witnesses. Paul will quote Moses to the Corinthians, and he'll say in 2 Corinthians 13, every fact is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So these people had three required witnesses. The only problem was is that they were false witnesses. Look at verse 2. It indicates that some of this false teaching came by a spirit. That is, someone stood up in their assembly and they spoke in a tongue. It's called the gift of tongues in the New Testament. The word glossolalia is always used in reference to a real language. It is like nothing what the Hindus do today that mimics what many Pentecostal brethren do today. It's just gibberish. There's no miracle behind that. Some lady called me and then she wrote me a letter angry in the last 30 days telling me I didn't believe in the miraculous. And I thought, you're the one who's diminishing the miraculous. What you are doing with the gift of tongues is not the miracle of Pentecost. The miracle of Pentecost was a real language, and what the Pentecostals are doing is often duplicated by both unbelievers and even other world religions. So someone stood up. It was a miracle. They spoke a language they had never um, learned before. They thought this is a word from God. But remember, Satan is a great imitator. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so they thought, okay, there's a witness. We got a tongue. In addition, notice he says, you're not to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, and then the second witness, or a message. The King James says a word. It's the word logos. A word of prophecy. What was prophecy? Prophecy in the early church was often expressed when a man or a woman could stand up in the church and they became a direct conduit of revelation. A parallel today would be a man or a woman reading the Bible in church. And so God gave direct revelation. Why did he do this? Because the Bible was not completed yet. And they needed direction. Now, they were to test the spirits to see whether they were of God. And the prophets were to challenge one another and check out one another. So they had this second witness. The day of the Lord is here. Someone spoke in tongues and said it. A spirit came. A word of prophecy came. Must be true. Not necessarily. And so they thought the day of the Lord had come. The old King James says at hand. The new King James says had come because the word at hand had a different meaning than it does today. This is why a modern literal translation might be useful to you. So they had thought the day of the Lord had come. Worse, there's a third witness. Let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. A letter had come. A letter, Paul says, as if from us. So they had a spiritual utterance. They had a misguided prophecy by a false teacher. And then there was this third confirmation where someone wrote a letter as if it came from an apostle. 
By the way, that's why he will end this letter. If you look over a page at chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So somehow he put his signature on the letter so that no one could say this letter was from Paul unless it had this distinguishing mark. By the way, cults and false religions today are established in the same three false criteria, a spirit, a message, or a letter. There's always some additional revelation. So Joseph Smith liked women, had 44 wives. I'll write a book that will justify my own evil. That's precisely what he did. There's always some vision, some dream, some additional revelation. And by the way, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, the early church fathers for the next 500 years, the writings and commentators done by Christians indicate that those gifts dried up when God finished his Bible. Why? because they were no longer needed. You can't add to the scripture. You can't subtract to it. So God gave us a plumb line. So we go to the plumb line. And if if it's an addition, don't do that. Revelation warns of that in the last chapter. And you certainly don't want to take away from what God has said, as many are doing today. And so they're justifying all kinds of evil. Saying, well, we just misunderstood this. Someone was out in the hallway with me after the first service and said, you know, that man you witnessed to, he's really mad at you. Really, what's he really mad at you about? Because you said that the pastor of his Presbyterian church here in town, it was just fine for him to marry his son to his boyfriend. No, it's not. You can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Supreme Court of the United States can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Abraham Lincoln said to a young boy one day, if a dog, if a dog's tail is called a leg, how many legs does the dog have? He said, well, he has five legs. He said, no, he only has four legs. You can call a tail a leg, but it's not. It's a tail. And you can call two men or two women being married, but it's not a marriage, not in the eyes of Almighty God. And so there's all kinds of deception that is going on in our day. Let no one deceive you in any way. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's number one. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's number two. So he's countering their three false testimonies with three three true testimonies. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's number three. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 013. Every word that Pastor Carl preached today was from the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever wondered how you can prove the Bible to be true? Well, in Dr. Brogy's book, How to Prove the Bible is True, Pastor Carl examines five crucial evidences that prove the Bible is the Word of God and will share how you can definitively and accurately convey these truths to others. 
With a donation of any amount, you can receive a copy of How to Prove the Bible is True. Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.